0: I'm Katie Rich, the Deputy Editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here once again with our Chief Critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And joining us this week, uh, once again, we have our TV Critic, Sonia Soraya. Hi. And our LA Correspondent, Anthony Brysoncan. Hello. Uh, it's been a busy time for uh, for you, Senyu. I feel like we've had you on a lot, which has been delightful. Uh, but Anthony, it's been a while, so thanks for returning.
2: It has been, yeah. I yeah. thought it was like persona non grata or something. You
0: know, with this, <laughs> when you got too many good people to have on your podcast, you just got to wait your turn in line. <laughs> well, all your all right. your colleagues are too smart and interesting.
2: They are. Um, they are.
0: <laughs> so, so this week uh, we are going to be continuing our Emmy season interviews. Uh, now the nominations are out, and Richard is going to be talking to Sarah Snook, who you might know better as Shiv Roy on Succession. Um, Um, I'm literally looking forward to that classic fasting experience where someone you think of as American from their TV role turns out to be Australian! Um, So, (laughs) Richard, you can reveal us all of her Australia secrets. Yeah, Um, an
1: interview done in the still of the night because of Australian time. (laughs) It's gonna be interesting.
0: We're a global podcast here. Um, But then first, uh, we brought in Sonia and Anthony both to talk about Lovecraft Country, which is the new series debuting on HBO this week. Uh, And then Richard and I are also going to talk about a new A24 movie available on Apple called Boys State, which won a big prize at Sundance earlier this year. But first, Lovecraft Country. Uh, Sonia, I might let you start in your review uh, just went up yesterday. Um, this is kind of a big deal series. It feels like HBO is kind of like big, splashy effects-heavy thing, like, you know, not quite the new Game of Thrones, but maybe in that vein, maybe more like the new Watchmen. Um, how does it kind of live up to that mantle? It's definitely very interesting and very ambitious. I, I feel like that
3: sounds like so faint, but... Um, It really did, a lot of it really did remind me of Watchmen. Actually, the first scene is a kind of black and white sort of uh, look. It feels like an old-time movie, but it turns into a science fiction story. So it it very much has a lot of the trappings of Watchmen, where we're looking at racism in America through a historical lens, kind of through a genre lens. But then we have the Lovecraft science fiction. The first scene is um, the main character, Jonathan Majors, He's the uh, actor. The character's name is Atticus Freeman, and he's like fighting in the trenches. It looks like it's maybe World War One. It turns out it. I think it might be Korea. And then like a flying saucer lands, and like like a, a woman comes down from a beam, and her like skin is red. And then they like turn around, and Cthulhu is there, <laughs> and like really creepy, really big, like on the battlefield. And then Jackie Robinson slices Cthulhu in half with a baseball bat so it's very like it's pulling from a lot of things um and it has uh, of course like very deeply referential to H.P. Lovecraft stories and what's interesting about that is that H.P. Lovecraft was like notoriously racist um there's a lot of overt uh white supremacy like in his work and yet the characters in the book uh in the story are fans of his. They're fans of his, of his imagination and his very interesting take on science fiction. And so all of the stories end up having this very Lovecraftian bent to them, but then they all end up being bent towards the racism in America. Like the horror is always the racism. Like that's pretty much what happens in the the story.
0: (laughs) So, Anthony, you uh, wrote a story uh, last week, I think, it's for for the magazine as well as online, about the way that Black creators are using horror to tell their stories, and using a lot of examples. You know, Jordan Peele's Get Out, I think, is uh, you know a huge prominent example in this. How does Lovecraft Country fit into that um, that trend that you're seeing, or that legacy?
2: Yeah, that was uh, that's a topic that. I was really interested in, I've written a lot about horror storytelling over the years. I start out as a writer because I, you know, like a lot of people from my generation read Stephen King and thought, oh, I want to write scary stories like that. And uh, uh, you talk to a lot of creators and they feel the same way. Black, white, across the spectrum of of backgrounds, like they, uh, scary stories were the thing that made them fall in love with stories. And I think it's a very human thing uh, across cultures. Uh, We all like to you know, sit around the fire and get a little close to people and hear a a spooky story that makes you wonder about what else is out there in the world. And uh, uh, this particular story was um, inspired by a writer I know named Tanana Reef Du, who is not just a, a, a great novelist herself, but she's a scholar, she's a professor at UCLA, and she teaches a course in black horror called The Sunken Place.
0: She actually came on the show um, a couple months ago after she wrote the uh, essay that for us about her mom, the uh, civil rights activist. So, yes. um, if you uh, you might remember her from a few months ago.
2: Yeah, and her mom loved horror stories, and. You know, she and I are, are friends, and and I've read her writing and talked to her about her mom. And it always kind of baffled her dad and her and her sisters that her mom loved horror because her mom was on the front lines of the civil rights battle in the nineteen sixties, had her eyesight damaged, was you know saw people beaten and arrested, and uh, and why would somebody who's witnessed real horrors be interested in horror? And really, what it came down to was each one of them, each one of these creators, said that horror is a great way of dealing with. With real trauma, with real fears. And I don't think that's anything new. I think it's always been that way. But now what we're seeing is a trend in horror where it really overtly deals with racism. And and Tanana Reeve said, like, you know, we're we're seeing now where people are getting the chance to tell horror stories on a on a big canvas, meaning television, film where the monster is racism. And uh, what Sonia said is exactly right, is, is that there may be, you know, pagan cults in Lovecraft Country that are trying to open a parallel dimension to the Garden of Eden, <laughs> what they perceive to be the Garden of Eden, but they, really what it comes down to is they are also horrific bigots, and time and again, I think, well, one of the scariest things in that, in the pilot episode, I thought, was not necessarily the monsters that that appear in the finale, but the cop who pulls them over in what are known as sunset towns, meaning don't get caught there after sunset if your skin is not white. And um, there's nothing supernatural about that cop. He just tells them sunset is in six minutes and you're nowhere near the border of our county. Not a monster to be seen, but then of course the monsters come in.
0: Yeah, and then later when the monsters do show up, they are they're still with the cops who have kind of like apprehended them, and (laughs) the cops like really stubbornly are like, "No, you can't go out to like fight these monsters. Like you're still like under arrest or whatever. Like they can't get over their own racism to save their own lives, and it uh, it doesn't work out well for them. It is it's such a nice pairing of the literal monsters and the monsters that are the human beings.
2: And Lovecraft, I think, is a great vehicle for this because one of the writers I spoke to is Victor Laval, who wrote. A really wonderful novella called *The Ballad of Black Tom*, and Black Tom is uh, is Tommy, this um, musician from Brooklyn, who uh, you know he's he's called that in the book. Uh, he's a he's a black man uh, uh, living in New York City, uh, who's trying to make a living as a musician, and he ends up playing music for this rich man who's part of this this old gods cult. And um, what Victor did was he retold the story that Lovecraft wrote called The Horror at Red Hook uh, from the perspective of of a minor Black character from the story, made him the main character. And, you know, what Victor said, I think, is something that Misha Green, the creator and showrunner of Lovecraft Country, really has leaned into. Uh, and that was, you know, he, he loved reading Lovecraft as a kid, and then like, a lot of us who enjoyed the otherworldliness of Lovecraft's imagination was really sickened to discover some of the...
3: White supremacy. Yeah,
2: gruesomely, <laughs> just, just, yeah, well, yeah, overt, like, not just, not just like a product of his time, but like like a disgustingly aggressive racist. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, the pilot episode has uh, Atticus Freeman picking up a, a book in his uncle's shop that's written by Lovecraft, and he quotes... The title of a poem that that Lovecraft wrote that's unspeakable, and it's meant to be like a funny limerick style poem, and it it'll it'll turn your stomach. And so the show right away, it doesn't just say like, oh yes, there were like themes of racism in Lovecraft's work. You don't have to look hard to find the racism. (laughs) Yeah, no, this was like this guy was like proud of it. And what Victor told me that really stuck with me was you know, he was like, I loved Lovecraft. And then I like recoiled from him. And then as I got older, I came to look at Lovecraft as like having a an uncle or an aunt or a grandparent in your family tree who you loved, who was kind to you or made you happy. But then you find out they hold a lot of messed up racist views. And um, Victor's biracial. So I think he probably has uh, you know, some of that experience in his, in his own family. But I think uh, a lot of other families can relate to that is that sometimes you discover something about your heroes that's really ugly and awful. And so basically these black creators who, who have recognized that the craft of scary storytelling was profoundly influenced in a positive way by Lovecraft have reclaimed his work. And it's sort of like, uh, this was mentioned in the five bloods too, which, uh, uh, which he was, a, a co-star in, uh, why would you fight for a country that doesn't care about you? Uh, that's something the uncle says to Atticus in Lovecraft Country. And that's a big part of Spike Lee's movie, The Five Bloods, too. And I think like Lovecraft is a similar thing. is How can you love something that doesn't love you back, that actually overtly hates you or suppresses you? And by reclaiming Lovecraft, I feel like it's a very American story of like, yes, this land was founded on some very awful principles, but like, we're here now and it's ours and we're going to retake it. And I think that's pretty admirable. I think it's a nice, it's a nice way to reclaim something that could be destructive.
0: Well, it feels like that's going to be the project of, you know, so many people like complain about cancel culture and like, you know, uncovering the like horrible beliefs of people who came before us, but like take what they have given to society and like you said reclaim it like turn it into something new like I I don't know a ton about Lovecraft I'm not as much of a horror person so if Lovecraft Country is the way that I'm introduced to you know some of the ideas that he had like that seems kind of the ideal way to do it like have it framed through someone who is able to filter it and um, take what's good and maybe leave the rest behind
2: yeah and what Victor told me I uh, was that You know, he personally feels a deep connection to Lovecraft's storytelling because the thing that made Lovecraft so interesting was this idea of not just that there's a monster in the woods or somebody with an axe who's coming to get you, but that, like, there are these profound powers that are beyond your imagination that are, you can't even fathom what they are, and they are aligned against you. And, right,
3: there's a lot of creeping dread and, mm-hmm. like, psychological weight,
2: yeah. But also, if you're yeah. a black man in the 19... What year is this set? Is it, like, the... nineteen fifty? like, 55? 55, yeah. You know, yeah. the fact that he can't get a ride into town on the truck that comes to pick up the bus passengers when the bus breaks down, like, like just everything is against you. You are in constant danger. And so what Victor... Uh, Victor Laval said, who, again, he wasn't part of uh, Lovecraft country, but has his own Lovecraft... Uh, Adaptation was like, yeah, I I could respond to that. (laughs) The idea that like everything is against you, and there's no possible way you as a human man or a human woman can defy that. Uh, But you've got to, you've got to face it down anyway. Uh, uh, He's like that. He's like, I wondered if I could, if I could take that and use that, but 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 throw away the the toxicity, or or use it as a criticism of the toxicity.
3: I mean, something something that interested me as I, because I watched the first five episodes, the five episodes that of the first, I think it's the first half of the first season. The pilot episode really struck me as the strongest, partly because it gave us a lot more subtlety. There was a lot more psychological creeping because, I mean... Uh, One of my favorite things about it is that uh, the main character, Atticus, his uncle is played by Courtney B. Vance. And um, his uncle creates like a travel guide that's like a safe travel guide for Black families that are traveling around America. So it's something something that needs to happen, but it's risky for him to go and like collect this information. And they have run-ins with cops and racist towns and it's scary. And then the show moves into kind of a monster. It's almost a monster of the week mode to use that sort of X-Files term because every episode has like a new, a uh, horror kind of trope or horror structure. So there's a haunted house episode. The first episode ends up being a cabin in the woods episode. There's like a spooky treasure hunt, uh, later on. There's a whole Wolfman plot later on. And, um, it's really interesting. Like I found it very exciting and, and uh it's like there's so much novelty in seeing like a totally different way of approaching this type of horror story where the black characters are central and the horror is racism and they're like finding new and new ways to to uncover and reveal that horror actually. But at the same time, I it was so difficult to feel as if at the end of one episode it sort of felt like there was oh, okay, and we're kind of back to square one. And now these characters who have just gone through this horrible thing are about to go through a new horrible thing. Mm -hmm. And there's there's something where I I think that it's very intentional that there's this, you know, and, and I think there's something legitimate to be said about how the Black experience, especially at this point, is just a cavalcade of horrors. And on the other hand, I felt like it almost is a little numbing. It's a little numbing for the for for it was hard for me to to keep a bead on the characters as they kept going through these terrible things um and i think that's not really the point i mean i think that like it's not as much a character drama as it is kind of an exploration of all of these different types of horror stories but i think um i think that's worth noting going into it is that it's a little bit more about exploring and subverting your expectations and kind of playing with these themes than it necessarily is, like, a prestige drama that has these really, like, angsty character beats and a lot of development,
2: yeah? Do you think it's kind of meta in that way, that it's meant to be, like... Like, the opening sequence with the the UFOs and the uh, tentacle Mm -hmm. monster, Cthulhu, and then uh, Jackie Robinson shows up to slam with a baseball. Like, all of that seems very, like... Fanciful, it seems like it's maybe. meant to be a joke, like that. It's like, we're yes, yeah. we realize we're throwing like everything at you. And that's what this show is going to be is we're just we're commenting on the pulpiness of it. Because that's the thing about yeah. Lovecraft, too. He was no Henry James, right? There was no like, <laughs> he was no, not even Edgar Allan Poe. Like, he, in some ways, his writing was maybe too purple. And, and, uh and he had good, you know, uh, interesting ideas about about monsters and creatures like that, but, but he wasn't exactly respected. He was a weird tales writer. He wasn't writing in anything that was more prestigious than that. And so Mm -hmm. they're really leaning into the fact that, yeah, this would be, this would be pulpy. Um, This would be sexual. A lot of those stories were sexualized because that was part of the appeal of them. And, um, and this is, and we're also going to just push the boundaries of of maybe good tastes <laughs> make it it's, defi- it's definitely
3: intentional it's mm-hmm. definitely intentional I mean and I think that was one of the I was sort of like okay maybe this is just like not really for me like there's there's an element of like fun and like uh kind of um what's the word you're sort of reveling in the horror a little bit It's campy. but that was a little diff. Right, 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 but that was difficult for me because the the background of it is horrible, real racism, like horrible, real segregation. Like a- and I'm like, I'm not having fun, but I understand the catharsis of it. Like, I understand being like, yes, like, show me, show me the show me, show me how bad it is and and tear it all apart. Um, so I, I kind of wanted to like I, I think it's if you're going to go into watching this, it might be it might be helpful to know that because I was a little I was a little taken aback. It wasn't quite what I was expecting.
0: Well, I want to ask about the fifth episode, which I haven't seen yet, um, but I, it's directed by Cheryl Dunier, the director of The Watermelon Woman, which we talked about on the show also uh, back in June uh, with Johanna Desta. And Johanna had interviewed uh, Cheryl, and I didn't know that she was going to be involved in this specifically. And I hear it's, like, super gross, which is not what I would expect it's having watched The Watermelon Woman. So,
3: it is so gross. Um, <laughs> I'm trying to think of the best way I can describe it without giving anything away. Basically, there are a, a few scenes of molting, uh, where a human being is molting oh. uh, skin. I, I yeah, it's super gross. I mean, I, I I was actually one of my favorites of the of the set. So um, Journey Smollett Bell is pl- uh, plays a character named Letitia. Her sister is named Ruby, and she's played by Wunmi Musaku. And the episode kind of is centered on her. Um, it, it, well, oh, mostly cool. on her her experience. And, um, that actually was one of the stories that worked best for me because I felt like it, uh, it had a, both a strong character arc and the horror really tied into it well. And, uh, there's a point where they play like the Cardi B, the Cardi B song, Bodak Yellow. And, you know, uh, these are red bottoms, these are bloody shoes, but like, a literal interpretation, perhaps, of that line, and I was just like, oh, "Okay, we're here. <laughs> we're doing this." And you know, um, something, something, just to point out about this—you know, executive produced by Jordan Peele and J.J. Abrams if you've seen any of the episodes of uh, Jordan Peele's new Twilight Zone, or, you know, if you're familiar with the twists and turns of Lost, this has a lot in common with that. They even use that sort of hyper, the like hysterical strings that Lost would use when they're like, oh, someone's approaching Mm -hmm. like the button or someone's approaching the monster. And it's like really signaling to you like something bad is going to happen. It's it's very heightened. And I think it's really enjoying being campy and pulpy, as we're saying.
2: Even the character's, themselves, if I could add to that, you know, Journey Smollett and Jonathan Majors play geeks, you know, Mm -hmm. like Mm -hmm. there's that moment where they head out on the road and, and uh, he's like, oh yeah, I remember you being in the such and such sci-fi book club, like that they were as kids in a sci-fi book club and that they're, they're nerds, you know, they're into all of the pulpy cheesy stuff of that era and uh, and that they love it, and now they have to face it. And I kind of like that they uh, that Misha and I don't know the original novel, but I like that the show at least leans into the idea of these are these are geeks. You know, in some ways, there it's a little bit of that like Scream or Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, approach, yeah. where the characters in the story kind of know the tropes of the story they're in, but that helps them kind of solve the puzzle. And um, yeah, and they're very. Uh, they're not just like oh no we're trapped and like, like screaming and hysterical and trying to get away like they they kind of think ahead of the monsters of the racists of the other of the spirits and creatures so i, I like i like that they had that that knowledge you know
0: richard as someone like me who gets scared off by horror really easily have you been able to handle lovecraft country at all
1: um yeah i mean i what i've seen of it which is just a couple episodes like um you get it's manageable on that front um you know, I think that the, the, you know, the true horror of the show, uh, which, you know, Sonia and Anthony have already talked about being, you know, these very real pervasive problems of racism inherent to that era and our, our current one, those are, you know, that's a different sort of thing. And I think that like similar to Watchmen, the way that the show, you know, it's a tricky line to walk to ask that something about something so uh, the opposite of this also be entertaining. And, uh, you know, I think that Get Out being the sort of more, the, the, like, the real watershed example of that recently, I think a lot of projects that come after that maybe look a little, you know, less than in its reflection. But, but you know, that Jordan Peele's involved in this, I think, is not, you know, that, that, that may, it makes a certain sort of sense. But, but, yeah, I guess that's a way of saying that, like, it manages the line of, like, horror and in a way that I think is not always going to land perfectly, but I found myself watching the show, I guess, more appreciating the the idea than the actual product, uh, in a way. But I think that's also possibly because I don't go in for, you know, Lovecraftian monster mashes. You know, I, that's not my sort of ballywick in, in terms of um, if I go see something scary or whatever. But I will say also from from the the, the perspective of a and maybe you agree with me, Sonia, but, like, you know, a very frequent TV watcher is that it is not to sound slavishly devoted to one corporation, but it is really nice to just be in, like, the luxe world of an HBO show. <laughs> you know, I think that they put an extra patina on things that, that Netflix doesn't always do. In- I feel like increasingly Netflix is less concerned with the aesthetics of their shows. So, you know, it looks great. It's a cool to see this cast um, in the form of Journey to who's been around forever, but, like, has kind of been rediscovered as an adult actor. Um, Jonathan Majors, who had such a breakout at Sundance a couple years ago with The Last Black Man in San Francisco, like, it's cool to see those actors getting such front and center in such a big lavish production and then having you know elder statesman Courtney Vance there to sort of you know provide the gravitas you know I will also say that uh, I forget who was originally supposed to play the role Uh, it was someone something of a bigger name but Abby Lee um, an Australian model turned actor who people will know from um, uh, The Neon Demon and from Mad Max Fury Road plays a sinister uh, white lady who um becomes involved in this trio's, uh, journey. Uh, and I think she's a really interesting presence, um, of, of, you know, questionable, uh, villainy or not. Um, and, um, yeah, so I don't know. I think there's a lot there to like, even if I ultimately was a little bit less enthralled by the whole thing as I had hoped to be.
2: The monster yeah. is Karen.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly.
3: Michael K. Williams is also in the cast, speaking of sort of elder statesmen, um, Uh, He plays uh, uh, Atticus's, Jonathan Major's sort of missing father and then kind of estranged father later on. And there's really, there's really interesting, there's really interesting threads. Like there are a lot of mysteries that just get solved episode to episode. And then there are a few little mysteries that they kind of are playing out over the whole season. There's this mysterious phone number that he, uh, that Atticus calls in Korea at the beginning And it's like, it could not be more lost. There's like a string of numbers that he says like into the phone. I'm like, all right, I, (laughs) I'm really excited. Uh, I mean, it's always exciting to see the legacy of these, uh, of these previous shows. And I think fans who are excited about puzzles will, will have a lot to latch onto with this.
2: Um, Doesn't it feel like less than a puzzle though, to you in some ways, like one of the, things that i found really challenging about watchmen was you watch that first episode of watchmen and you go what's this about like what is happening here and it's not <laughs> until you get about halfway through that series that you even start to kind right. of figure out like what is what is this character It's a real slow like,
3: build. Like, yeah. But it, but yeah. but
2: almost like deliberately baffling. Like it does not give you a lot of exposition. It plunges you into This world, Mm -hmm. and I, I feel like Lovecraft Country. At least in these first episodes, it's like there are these longer term mysteries, but we're also just going to give you a couple of satisfying meals to close out. Like finish your plate on this, and then move on to the next thing, and like. Um,
3: Yeah, I was actually a little surprised in the second episode, like how much they revealed. I was like, oh, these could have been some season long mysteries, but you just told us a bunch of stuff like right off the bat. Um, No, it is interesting. The pacing, I I would say I struggled a little bit with the pacing because it does seem like it's a little erratic. Um, It's a little like we're going to give you a bunch of backstory. And then we're just gonna kind of hit a reset button for the next episode, and it's and, and it's it's kind of interesting. I mean, it's it's an interesting way to do it. I have to say, like, I even though it didn't work for me at every moment, I was like, I really need to see what happens next because it kept surprising me. It was very intriguing. I love. I mean, I love the ambition. So even when it didn't necessarily fit with my, uh, you know, I'm I'm also like a complete horror weenie. I can't I can't handle stuff like the gore in the fifth episode i was like i cannot i can't do this i had to like turn away from the screen sometimes but i was so the ideas are really interesting so even if it doesn't necessarily work for me in kind of a visceral way i found myself very curious about where it was all going to go
0: maybe we'll have to check in once we've uh, seen the entire season to find out where it goes uh, when i I assume it's a 10 episode season in the uh in the standard hbo way yep 10 episodes uh, well, speaking of horror, or maybe not quite horror, there is a really different uh, thing to watch out there, a documentary called Boy State that, uh, Richard, when we were talking about it before, you described it in the very beginning as a horror movie. Uh, and I kind of understand why. Mm-hmm. It's about this like summer program run by the American Legion. I believe it's in all 50 states. This documentary is about the one in Texas. And uh, teenage boys basically go to Austin, the state capital, for a week and create uh, political parties and run campaigns. Um, and it's a lot of like boys in tight spaces like chanting and cheering and like getting really amped up, uh, about, you know, a, a fake political race, but one that means a lot to them. Um, I saw a lot of people describe it as a horror movie, but I found it overall so like endearing and interesting to get a glimpse into these kids' lives. But, um, but Richard, I think you, maybe you saw more of the balance of, that this is both, uh, uplifting and terrifying at the same time.
1: Yeah. I mean, in, in the review that I filed, which probably gets into like, you know, TMI territory, um, I kind of linked two things, like one, the sort of broader horror at, you know, this kind of origin story of Trumpism in teenage boys, but also it just reminded me of the week, two summers in a row that I spent uh, at uh, my own sleepaway camp experience as a 14 year old, not out of the closet, you know, sort of shy, unathletic kid at a sports camp. Um, I was horrified, like routinely. And it was terrible to see from my perspective, this Complete, like free reign for like a- nation, aggro, male dominant behavior, Lord of the Fliesy kind of stuff, uh, just like playing out in real time, and and sort of you know that I was then subject to. So it <laughs> it dredged up a lot of those um, gnarly memories from my own past. But I think the way that that feeling of these teenage boys, you know out of their homes, feeling, I think, this first, you know, at that age, 16, 17, like some agency in the world beyond that of their parents, the way they choose to exercise that, is not necessarily their fault. It's the way that a lot of them have been socialized. But, like, it's aggressive. It's, you know, there is there is no lens allowed, allowed for anything that is not cis and heterosexual. And there's also little room left for um, boys who are, uh, you know, not white. Um, there are two prominent characters in the film who are um, people of color. But I, I think that the way we see them... Marginalized in their own experience in, in that camp is also very telling. So I, I didn't I didn't find anything warming about it beyond a couple people and a couple moments. But I think that's okay. The documentary does not need to embrace us to make us feel better about the future of civics in this country. I think it was just saying like. You know, this is an extreme example because this is a camp that not everyone goes to and the people who want to go to it have, you know, their, you know, like, it's kind of like the Yelp review thing. Like, the only people who are motivated to review something on Yelp are the people who are angry at it wherever they went or the product they use. Whereas, you know, I think in this camp, it's like, this is not actually a sampling of, like, the political mind of an entire generation of, of teenage boys. It's actually just the people who want to go to this thing in Texas.
0: I mean, I think I was expecting a lot more of what you're describing of kind of this like agro male world. Like it's a Texas political camp. Like I think the kids in the film describe it as being conservative. But those two characters who are talking or people who you're talking about, um, Renee and Steven, who are the, you know, most prominent non-white characters, I feel like they just they gave me so much hope in terms of like you expect it to be one thing, but like Renee gets elected to be the party chair, and then Stephen has this run for governor that goes way further than I definitely expected when the the film started. Uh, and they're really different people. Like, Renee is is black. He's from Chicago. He, like, describes himself as a liberal, and he's kind of there to, like, he thought he was going to shame them all but kind of changed his ways. Uh, and he gives this one speech and gets so fully embraced by this room of, like, overwhelmingly white conservative kids who, like, can't stop talking about how they support guns and, um, and like, hate abortion. Um, which is insane that all these teenage boys get so worked up about abortion, but that's a different thing. And then Stephen is this, like, you know, kind of quiet, kid and he wants to go and he wants to talk everybody and like forges this connection and that really connects with them too and it didn't make me think like oh wow one person can really change something like the levels of success for them really varies but it made me see the layers in all of the other kids like there's this other one Robert who's a super privileged like you know very like Taylor Kitchen Friday Night Lights looking kid and he kind of reveals layers in himself too like you think he's going to be the like popular jock who wins everything and it doesn't work out that way and he he kind of has this self reflection looking back on why that worked i i thought it revealed the individual nuance in people within a system that seems kind of designed not to support that individual nuance and it doesn't always work that way but i was i, I loved watching these kids and how into it they got and how committed they were and how it, it kind of changed their thoughts even if they didn't think it did um and i got so invested in their stories as a process
1: yeah I mean I think that that's the thing that it's important to stress you know even if you're someone like me who's criticizing the world of the movie is that you know these kids are on the line of, of culpability right where they're young enough that it's like they're not bad people they, they clearly have most this some of this thinking from you know whether it's you know stuff I agree with or not from from other sources other places also lived experience of course. you know there's one scene where briefly where a character who is, very politically savvy and, and, and is making his way forward in the camp uh, is described in, in odd terms by another camper as, you know, people say he's he's like Ben Shapiro yeah. and he says that in the most complimentary of ways yeah. and my head exploded. I, I was like, there are teenage people who know, A, know who Ben Shapiro is and B, like him. Yeah. But of course there are because he's on YouTube and everything. and And so I think the movie is more a study of the profound effects that, you know, quote unquote grown up Political discourse, which is a generous term for what we have, gets uh, you know trickles its way down to, to young people, and to see young people in the way that they would in any in many social situations, act out the. The trappings of, of adulthood, as they see it, you yeah. know. I think that's why they get so hung up on these, you know, old sawhorses like guns and you know anti-choice stuff. Like, it's because that's like the, the, the one of the loudest things that sort of been ground into, you know, through the generations, like as a as a bedrock political or at least campaign platform. So I think the movie is more despairing about our political process and, uh, and and things like that than it is about these individual kids. I yeah. think the movie would be super cynical if it was, like, anti-the kids, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, like, I think even the kids who are trickier to deal with, like the um, the kid who you're talking about, who is kind of the uh, admiring the Ben Shapiro-esque one. He's like, um, you know, he has a Reagan action figure in his house, uh, and he's a paraplegic who, like, is, you know, also very deeply conservative, which is not necessarily what you expect. And he, But I find him fascinating, too. Like, I want to see what he grows up to do. Um, and, you know, uh, Stephen, who is the one who runs for governor... Is he a Mexican-American kid? You kind of see in the prologue that he spoke at the Texas Democratic Convention uh, later. And I'm like, all right, like, put him on the real DNC stage. Like, I want to see where this kid goes. Um, and the fact that he succeeded, like, there's the, you know, they make hay of him having participated in a march for our lives. And in some ways, he, he succeeds despite it. Again, it just, it, it gave me faith in in these kids to become individuals, even if this system seems built up to make them be, like, about guns and nothing else. Um, but maybe well, yeah. maybe I'm just hungry for, like, group dynamics, like, just seeing uh, this, like, whole summer camp of, like, people in one place, like, being in rooms and yelling uh, just made me nostalgic.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, I would much rather watch the great documentary Stage Door about kids at Stage Door Theater Camp than <laughs> I would this, which I think gives you the same satisfaction without um, the, you know, real-world implications. Sure, sure. Um, but, I, you know, I think that, like, the the case of Stephen is an interesting study in that, like, you know, here we have an observation of a kid you know, a young person of color whose, you know, mother was a Mexi- is a Mexican immigrant who is in this world that is, yes, not necessarily a demographic representation of the whole of Texas of his generation, but, like, you know, they're, they're, here's who he's, you know, been confronted with. And this is a kid who, you know, has to work his way through this hegemony to get to something that he feels like is progress and to be heard. And he is, but it just shows how much harder he has to work, how much, mm-hmm. you know, sort of more... Um, politic and less demagogue, you know, less of a demagogue he has to be to get there, you know. And so I think it's an interesting look at, like, people, uh, you know, who, these young politicians of color who have broken out of, you know, places like Minnesota, Missouri, to to really, like, get national attention. It's, like, how much they had bullshit they had to cut through yeah. to get yeah. there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, so I think that, you know, is both despairing but also hopeful. And I think that, if nothing else, the movie... I think does a an interesting job of belying what the bench appears of the world will will want you to believe, which is that this entire generation of Zoomers or whatever the young the, the generation younger than Zoomers are are just you know all inculcated and progressive liberal thought and that's all it is and they're going to go off to college campuses and be further indoctrinated, et cetera, et cetera. It's like well, here's an example of thousands of boys at least who are not actually yeah. that, and here's an example of two kids who maybe be could be you know called that even though they're actually doing the work of organizing marches and stuff like that. Uh, And look how much bullshit they have to cut through just to get anything even recognized. So Mm -hmm. it's an interesting survey of what could be imagined to be a political reality for a younger generation, even though, again, these are only people who have opted into this experience.
0: Yeah, and I, it, as opposed to a sports camp like the one that you went to, I was, in some ways, uh, delighted by the fact that they chose to, like, you know, spend their... I, having gone to nerd camp myself, I I appreciate that they chose to do this. I also love thinking about the kids who, like, there's a marching band that you hear throughout the film. Like,
1: there's yeah. a whole
0: group of kids who, like, went there to be in the marching band and not run for any political office. Like, what are they up to this whole time?
1: I also could have done with either more or or none of the talent show thing because it was so <laughs> cringy that I was like, I need more to kind of fight oh through the God. cringe. There's one kid who did an interpretive dance, and I was like, you are the bravest kid I've ever seen in my life. Oh, Um, yeah.
0: I played French horn in high school, and the kid who played Sandstorm, um, you know, the, like, you you know Sandstorm, um, played it on the French horn. I I, I rewound it and watched it again. It was wonderful.
1: I should also qualify that my scary sports camp was a tennis camp at Amherst College in Massachusetts. (laughs) It It was not, like, I wasn't at football camp in, like, you know. Dallas but uh still (laughs) did you
0: get to go to nerd camp too like did you ever get that experience
1: I did like summer theater camps but they were day camps not sleep
0: yeah I did um I did a lot of nerd camp like uh like on a college campus in my time and like took like computer programming
1: yeah, my mom started making me and my sister go to summer school, even though we didn't need to grades wise. Yeah. Uh, when I was about fifteen, and so like I took typing one summer, computer programming, <laughs> also still tennis, <laughs> and also drama. So you know, it yeah. was a fa- I was beca- you know I was becoming a Renaissance. Person, I
0: spent I many summers taking improv classes as like my sport, which is really. <laughs> really something. Uh, so Boy State, it won the um, documentary top prize at Sundance earlier this year. It's going to be on Apple TV+. Plus. Uh, I guess, I wish I should know. Like, I assume you can, even if you're not an Apple TV plus subscriber, you can rent it somehow eventually. Um, but I do think it's really worth watching. I think we'd both agree on that, right, Richard?
1: Oh, it's absolutely fascinating. And I think that my initial, you know, 15 minutes in, you know, message to you, is this a horror movie? <laughs> that softens some and it becomes a really emotional yes just you know despondent but emot- but like you know rewarding kind of just look at how things might be you know right now and and i think for that you know and the the filmmaking is really intimate and I don't think it's looking at these kids with any sort of assessing judgmental gaze, which I think is really hard to do with a project like this. It might be selectively edited, sure, and they've, you know, they've fo- choo- chosen to focus on particular kids over other kids. Sure. Yes, but like that's the project of a documentary. Yeah. So, um, But all told, I think that it's as fair as you want something like this to be, I guess.
0: It also might be really interesting counter-programming with the Democratic convention that's happening next week um, because you know obviously that one's not going to be in person, um, so Boy State is kind of a glimpse into the in-person version of, I imagine, a lot of the same dynamics we'll see playing out yeah. um, via Zoom, I guess. Ugh, it's kind of depressing to think about what the convention is going to be like, but we'll get there.
1: Maybe Steven Garza will be there. Oh my who God, knows?
0: please, Stephen Garza, bring him on, bring him on stage. Okay, Richard, So now let's listen to your interview with Sarah Snook, who plays uh, Shiv Roy on Succession. Um, we've been talking about like because so many of the cast members of Succession got nominated, um, but we both kind of agreed that she was the one we really wanted to hear from. Well, what is it about Shivroy that has us both obsessed?
1: Well, I think that, you know, I think the second season was a little bit less this because of the characters played by Holly Hunter and Cherry Jones, but at least within the, the microcosm of the family, like, she's, like, often the lone woman in the room, you know, uh, and, 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 you know, I think it's not an accident that that character also is the one who has the the, the most, like, publicly expressed liberal values, you know, working for a progressive political candidate, you know, all that, you know, obviously we see her sell all that out in an instant yeah. um, in, in the second season and I think the careful work that the show and her, and Snook's incredible performance does of, you know, we know that these people are all bad but Shiv seems initially the least bad mm-hmm. but then as you see her cynicism really emerge and and she chooses title and wealth over ideals time and time again you realize that she's maybe like one of the worst and also then perhaps as her father sees like the heir apparent to the whole thing yeah um so i think that you know it's it's really interesting to watch cordelia become reagan or goneril
0: man way to throw in the shakespeare reference at the last minute um all right well let's listen to your conversation with sarah snook
1: Well, I have the distinct pleasure uh, right now of being on the line from, I think, geographically the other side of the planet in australia with one of the most beguiling stars of succession uh the great sarah Snook. sarah thank you for doing this i know it's a weird space and time kind of thing
4: oh yeah <laughs> um, but isn't that yeah. always what we're doing right now yeah. <laughs> everything's a weird space and time yeah
1: um i i am curious like have you been doing um, most of quarantine in your native australia or how have the past few months been for you geographically
4: I have been in Australia since uh, February. Actually, oh, I nice. came back to Australia to meet some um, to meet up with my friends and family just before we were due to go back shooting, and uh, then the whole thing happened, and I got stuck here. So I yeah just have a suitcase of summer clothes, but um, winter set in, and um, I'm still <laughs> yeah twiddling my thumbs, wondering when I'll go back to work. Yeah.
1: Well, it's my understanding that there is sort of a plan now, right? I mean, in terms of of when shooting could tentatively start for season three, is that right?
4: Yeah, they're they're looking looking to begin, you know, hopefully before the end of the year. But yeah. I think it's a moving target, really, as as everything uh, seems to be with everything at the moment. <laughs> you know, nothing; those goalposts keep moving.
1: You really can't make plans, which is somehow freeing at this, uh, while well, also frustrating. <laughs> Very, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, So, you know, we talk about all kinds of things on this podcast, uh, movies, television, a little theater, cynically, our kind of raison d'etre is awards. Uh, So I have to ask you where you were and and when you found out that you were nominated uh, for an Emmy uh, for Succession.
4: Oh, I, I'm, I'm in lockdown at the moment in Melbourne. in a In a total lockdown, we can only leave our homes for an hour of exercise a day or to go grocery shopping. And so, <laughs> I was in. I was staying with a friend at their, their house and. Uh, he ran into my room and ripped the pillow off my head and said, "You've been nominated for an Emmy, did you know?" And I was completely asleep still because it was you know eight in the morning uh, and so that's how I found out, which was kind of great because I was so disoriented anyway and we all are in life at the moment, but so disorienting to have the pillow sort of pulled off my head and, and my friend yell at me. It felt like I was <laughs> like it was Christmas again or something. <laughs>
1: I would also think that it's such an interesting trajectory for this show in particular because you had this really well-regarded first season that seemed to gain a cult following, but the broader um, phenomenon of succession, if you want to call it that, really started to kind of click into place for season two. So, I mean, I feel like this is a recognition not just for, you know, Shiv's incredible arc on season two, but for for the show as it's been in, in its entirety how does it feel in terms of like the sort of wonderful slow build of this show i mean how conscious have you as an actor on the show been aware of like the kind of the process with which fans have found it
4: oh um i feel like the fans who found it are really ardent fans which is nice you know it feels like you're on the right track when you have such um sort of feverish support but it hasn't Done the uh, global takeover, I guess that um, that maybe Game oh well, Game of Thrones, I think was like a second or third season it started doing that, but um, it's kind of been nice because I've 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 been isolated from it not just because I've been geographically isolated, but because I guess I don't google myself too much or, or 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 try i try to avoid the uh the reviews a little bit but it has been funny to to once once i realized that there was a halloween costume of, of my character i thought oh there's something <laughs> it's really hitting a hitting a note here that people are really getting on board with but between first and second seasons i went i went uh, traveling and, and did a play in australia and i kind of have uh kept myself hidden from it a bit
1: yeah well i mean i think it's 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 an interesting kind of thing in that way because you know, with a show that's on HBO, where it's not 22 episodes, it's not you know a, a huge year-long commitment. Like you can kind of be in it for a moment and then you know go back and do theater yeah. and whatever. So I, I would imagine there there must feel a certain kind of freedom in that um, that you're not, It's not like your whole life all of a sudden.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we do shoot for a long period of time. Still, we shot for I think seven months for the second season. And it does feel right now, at least like a bit of a dream. I got a, a, um, (laughs) my, my iPhone did a, uh, this memory from from this day last year moment and you know it was like three weeks ago I got this and it was on it was on we were on the boat in Croatia and going wow what is life I was seeing, <laughs> first of all around so many people uh yeah. and in the middle of the Adriatic Sea shooting a tv show that people like that I'm now nominated for an Emmy for what has happened uh because days are all bleeding into one right now and in, in lockdown <laughs> so
1: yeah. to be reminded yeah. that you did something once upon the time it's kind of nice. No, exactly. I'm having that same sensation with film festivals where it's like I used to go to Cannes in France and like see movies in public. That's Whoa. that seems like yeah. a, another life. Um, in
4: crowds?
1: What? Yeah, yeah right, with no <laughs> masks or anything. Uh, yeah. you know, even watching like uh rewatching uh just to prep for this like the big, you know, Logan's kind of memorial party in Scotland, Mm. like, and no no Mm. one's wearing a mask and everyone's just hanging out. It's just like a, it feels like from another time. Totally. Um, But I did want to ask you about the Croatia shoot and, you know, when they're on the yacht and all this kind of Machiavellian, you know, jockeying happening. I think clearly from the people I've talked to who work on Succession, that there is in the production a clear, you know, sort of moral understanding of who these people are and what, what they represent. But I would, you know, is it hard to kind of keep that always present of mind when you're like on a yacht in, <laughs> in, in the Adriatic? <laughs>
4: yes, absolutely. I found it useful for an entry point into the character as well, because it's, it's amazing how quickly desensitized you do become to being on a yacht, ordering a coffee from, from the lovely staff who are, who will bring you one. And that's so nice of them, but you know, you end up sort of half having a toe or a foot in this life and seeing how easily it is for for someone like myself, who's never grown up with any of that kind of wealth, um, or even been around it, to become so easily accustomed to it, that if you did grow up around that... It is a different kind of life. It's a different kind of experience of the world and what, um, what your expectations are of people around you to, to meet them and, and how, you know, these people have never struggled for shelter, for food, for a bus fare, for really anything that is otherwise an experience of a lot of people in, in the world. It's amazing how easily accustomed you can become to that and have to remind yourself, you know, actively remind yourself that (laughs) this is not normal. (laughs) This is, you know, you're very lucky to be in the Adriatic shooting an amazing TV show with great scripts. Um, You know, soak it up while you can.
1: I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the interesting ironies of the show is that these people have never really wanted for anything material, and yet they think they are locked in the fight. For their lives, mm. you know, like they, it's, mm. it's such dire stakes for them. Um, we had Matthew McFadden on the show talking about season one, I believe, and he was talking about, yeah, in New York, we get to film in these luxe, you know, penthouses and mansions and all that. And those trappings can get hard to sort of ignore. Uh, but I think that's especially interesting for Shiv, who has positioned herself, I think, internally and externally as she relates to her family. As the one from the quote unquote outside who gets it, she is, she calls herself a a liberal. So she says, Oh, I I have these different politics than this family. And yet she's constantly in the mix, you know. Uh, And so I'm curious from your perspective in playing this really complicated character in terms of her motivation and her morality, like, what do you think that Shiv wants ultimately? And I'm thinking especially, you know, of the arc of season two, which starts with her getting this kind of pat on the shoulder from her father that's you know what they're all jockeying for and then ends with her in a much more ambiguous place like how did you see her sort of motivational arc uh, over season two
4: yeah i think it's it's a good question about what does she want and it, it occurs to me now that it's possible that she wants respect and that's what she's always driven for and she's probably gotten elsewhere, but then is confronted by the fact that it's the one person that she wants that respect and admiration from is her father. And so being offered the um, the head of the company in the way that he does is so um, blindsiding for her that she can't help but expose that that you know childlike almost vulnerability that that was what she wanted all along and then and then it quickly unravels and she loses that um that access to the seeming respect from her father that she would have gained had she been you know the the head of the company i think in in some ways getting the nod is is great but the real challenge would be for shiv if she ever had been given the opportunity to to run the company that's where the real um, the real work comes in and I don't know whether she'd I, I'd like to think that she'd be capable but I don't know whether she she would be she's really got a, um, a tricky what are the row to hoe I think even Tom says that in the show um, where she's um, she's she's purple in a way she's got to remain sort of liberal left and right and and be very centrist right down the middle but it'd be hard in that, in that what the dynamic is in the company, as well as her public facing outside of and what she wants as a person outside of the company. It'd be hard to make, meet the, make those two meet.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's the dichotomy that all of the Roy children face, which is that they all want this thing because it's been sort of vaguely dangled before them, but none of them really seem suited to actually do it. Do you play Shiv with that kind of knowledge of like, yeah, I want this, but I don't know that I could actually carry it through or do you think that she really is convinced that she can she's the one to do it
4: i think for for dramatic purposes i think she has to be convinced that she's the one to do it and again be uh, blindsided by her possible inability to to do it i even as sarah ha- have been convinced that she could definitely run the company and definitely do a good job of it but then as season 2 went on with really double double took there and thought well maybe maybe she couldn't and it's kind of more interesting if she couldn't i think um but we'll see we'll see if she gets that opportunity
1: yeah i mean i wanted to ask you about that about in terms of like you know you're you're one actor playing one character you're in an ensemble one of the best on on television in recent memory i think and and yet you are again one one person do your sympathies lie with her i mean are you rooting for her more than uh the her other siblings or other characters in the show uh,
4: yes, in that I, I like, you know, you have to you have to root for your own character, even if right. if they're ostensibly evil. But uh, as Sarah, I'm I'm rooting for the more interesting storylines, and and I, you know, we're we're sort of blessed with such wonderful writers that we we get um, the opportunity to have challenging plots and 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 dialogue and and anything that can kind of enrich something that is. Um, That is so fun already. You know, as you said, we've got a great ensemble, a great chemistry with the cast. Anything that kind of does something to subvert what you think is going to be the norm is a lot of fun to play. So I just, yeah, whatever's more interesting, really, for me.
1: (laughs) Yeah, no, and I think that one of those really interesting developments uh, for Shiv and and really one of the kind of, I don't know, kind of set pieces of the whole season two is... This really complex and sort of shattering scene that she has with a woman who is going to come forward in congressional Mm. hearings to talk about uh, sexual abuse that she suffered uh, in in the, you know, the Waystar Royco cruise ship line. And and Shiv goes as a kind of mercenary for her family, but also... I don't know, it's a really complex conversation that they have where she's basically, I think, you know, it seems like she's alluding to things we saw in the United States with Christine Blasey Ford speaking out against Brett Kavanaugh at his um, mm. Senate, um, Supreme Court confirmation hearings. Can you tell me a little bit about the process of preparing for that little, you know, episode arc of Shiv's and, and, and what conversations there were uh, between yourself and directors and writers about how to pitch that in, in the tone that we en- ended up seeing uh, on screen?
4: Yeah, it's she does do something quite cunning and and Machiavellian and and really, I mean, probably legal, legal to be honest, but. Um, but she's never she never lies. She's never untruthful. I think um, to Kira, and and I think she's she's being honest when she says she wants to go in and, and clean the whole place up. She really does. She wants to go in and and, and strip it bare and get rid of the toxic masculinity and the and the saying one thing but doing another um, in terms of diversity. I think she does want to change Waystar. I think that's. Um, aspirational and i don't know whether she'd be able to do it i think that's a you know starts a, a titanic ship to try to have to turn you know in 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 the process of of talking about it before we started shooting mark the director my mark Mylord, um you know mentioned things like the scene at the end of the godfather with with sonny corleone and and how he's encouraging his brother-in-law to to be honest and then once he is the honest you know gets gets what he needs and you know knocks him off That, I think, he's not lying there. He's being honest to him, but it's for his own purposes. And you sort of have to be, uh, you know, there's something devious about that. Interestingly, I thought it was <laughs> funny that he did something very similar to telling uh, Jeremy uh, a similar sort of reference to lean on it was the was the Godfather and, and Pacino's um, performance in that that then Kendall does for for season for season um, two finale and I think that's even that's quite kind of interesting as well. It feels very succession very kind of Roy move for, for Mark to have made by accident.
1: Yeah. Well, yeah, and that whole dynamic. I mean, it it, it can be. I think. For someone like myself, who, you know, I'm close to my parents and my sister, but I don't have this kind of intense familial devotion that these people are really willing to, like, Mm. tear down most of the world just to kind of keep this, you know, familial machine running. Yeah, I I would imagine that 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 hinges to play that so crucially on the dynamic with your other, you know, your fellow actors who are playing your siblings and your father and your stepmother and how much work goes into creating that bond before they call action? I mean, is is there like a lot of prep work together time or is it all just because, you know, the scripts are what they are that you can just make it happen in front of the camera?
4: Yeah, it's been a it's been a kind of surprisingly easy ride in creating a, a good fi- family dynamic. I think part of it is good casting and in, in the <laughs> milieu sort of thing. I think there's like a, a good gr- group dynamic in that sense. The relationships that that have been formed off screen, there's a reflection of that, I guess, on camera. But the um, the much nicer, kinder, hopefully a little more um, gentler way. We don't necessarily do rehearsals or prep off camera unless unless we needed to. I think you know, most of us are, are willing to if if the other if someone else asked you know can we run this scene or anything like that before before we shoot it you know a day or two before. But yeah, I, I, I you know it's a it's a great company to go to work with. I think
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, and, and I think that what's so crucial to that dynamic is that you really believe that you know every character. Feels that they're the best fit for the for the future of the thing, and I I don't know I I guess I wonder then if you have any, do you have any sense of like, where Shiv should be like is, 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 this is the only track that she kind of knows to pursue but like in your in your sort of like protection of the character or affection for the character do you think that there's another alternative for her that would suit her better?
4: Yeah, I mean maybe if she had continued with the um the, the sort of the political line, mm-hmm. as she'd become reasonably successful in that, and and it seemed to give her work satisfaction. I think she was happy in that she was successful. Yeah, sure, she should, she should go and do that. She should go and do something that is challenging and mentally stimulating. But as I said before, that familial devotion, which seems so um, unfamiliar, I think, to, to a lot of us that i feel like that's because they don't have much else i think when you're and though i don't know but i feel like when you're up that sort of top echelon top level everything you do is is um, judged by by things outside of your control as well and so you try and exert as much control as you can onto them but but markets and and stocks and and prices of things and and whether someone you know the, the social groups are, I think a lot smaller up, up at that, that end of, of wealth because everybody, it's a, it is a small pool and everybody would know each other. And so you kind of do have to be uh, devoted to your family or actively not uh, because it, those moves are a lot bigger, I think, up, up at that level.
1: Yeah, yeah.
4: You don't have friends to lean on and, and, and hide, hide behind, perhaps. And, and uh, yeah, it's, it, it's an interesting well, world.
1: No one else understands, and I think, you know, in, in mm. my interpretation, that's why Shiv, you know, is sort of clinging to Tom as much as it feels like he's clinging to her, because, like, at least he gets it. Like, at least he's in the room. And so uh, totally. it's someone to he's talk in the to room, about
4: it. Yeah, and he's in the room in a way that is, uh, that is still an outsider, and there's a lot of mm-hmm. power for Shiv in that, I think, because she's able to always just remain just a little bit more... Powerful than he is, although that kind of that dynamic changes a bit by the end of season two, which is, which is great to play with. But someone that she can sort of control or be know that she's more powerful than, and yet have an ear and an understanding to what she's going through in this world and this family, is enormously valuable to her.
1: Well, speaking of the world, um, <laughs> we are both citizens <laughs> of it, uh, and I'm curious, like as you make this show. It's obviously, it's not, like, ripped from the headlines, Law & Order style, but it is gesturing toward real-life things. I mean, some argue that it's about a real-life family, partly from Australia. Like, um, how much has being a part of this project affected the way you look at, like, news of the world and kind of interpret political things or economic developments? I mean, has, has it kind of uh, invaded your thinking in that way when you're not working on the show?
4: Yeah, I think there's a play called The Power of Yes, I think David Hare wrote it, um, and it's about the the economic crash in 2008, and what it was leaning towards and then pointing a finger at was that we could say the banks caused this, but there are people who work at the banks, there are individuals who, who make up a whole, there are singular people who are both fathers and mothers and daughters and, and sons of people who make decisions, and they get... Uh, lost in this faceless corporation, and I think that's what makes me really interested. It's that there are people who who you know had a bad oyster and had food poisoning all night, and then go to work the next day and make some decision from, based on you know maybe a physical reaction to to food poisoning that. Destroys lives down the ladder in, enormously. I think, I think what we're f- what we're discovering, or what I what I really love discovering in in, in succession is that each of these uh, huge decisions that have economic um, reverberations are made by people who are just like you and me, who have the same vulnerabilities and have the same uh, fears and anxieties and overslept or underslept or something like that. You know, just fundamentally they're people. It's kind of bizarre to think that they could have so much power or should have so much power. And yet they do, and we always have. We've sort of lived with this, you know, always throughout history, but something about the reach that we now have as individuals for power globally through the internet and through international markets. And I think that's an interesting world to explore.
1: Do you feel like it's like galvanized you toward any sort of new thinking about, about these kind of economic realities of our world um, being a part of this? Or it, it like, you know, because I, I think that some actors I've spoken to who are doing things that are either overtly political or sort of the politics are sort of the undercurrent of it, which I think kind of succession is. Um, mm. Do you feel like it, it's actually affected... Um, your own sort of, I don't know, ideological view of the world, or or, or has it addressed or, or shine shine a light on new problems that, that, that you you had mean, sort of?
4: Yeah, yes and no. I, I I've always believed that money doesn't probably doesn't make you happy, and I think that's definitely true. I think uh, experiencing that, I think you know you you need enough for your food, shelter, and and um, the hopeful kind of prosperous education of your children, and that's that's it really you don't, you don't need much more you don't need multiple houses you know toys like boats and and those wave bob that you don't you don't People don't need that those are things that are really fun and those are um are great to enjoy but no one needs that to be happier i think yeah
1: um
4: yeah. and yet I, I, on the other side of that i think you know bringing that down so so if we look at it as a scale Lifting people out of poverty to, to to be able to have a a bit more of that security that money brings for shelter, food, um, and health, such as something like a universal basic income. That's an interesting argument, and I think there's there's things that you know that I would be in favor of for that because of what it would give um, individuals who otherwise have to struggle to catch the bus or to feed their children, what they would be able to do, what what we as individuals, as human beings, would be able to contribute to society if we had a little less stress of just getting by, just surviving, would be amazing. Imagine if we could, you know, tackle climate change with with more minds because someone wasn't worried about whether they could feed their child or not.
1: Yeah, I think you see that kind of there's so much wasted time among the roy children and like you know yes Mm. they're they're, there there's this dynastic struggle this king lear kind of thing but Mm. but but they're also lounging on yachts and it's like you could all be like changing lives with this power and money and yet uh i don't think they see past their own nose on that you know in yeah absolutely yeah um if we could zoom out a little bit um I think that uh, people like myself who have been kind of tracking your career since, you know, predestination and, and perhaps, you know, probably some earlier, succession seems to be, if we want to use a kind of cliche term, a breakthrough for you.
2: Um, yeah.
1: I'm curious if you if you want to talk about it at all. Like, how has this kind of changed your, I mean, you have a, you know, a Seth Rogen movie out currently in, in you know, in the States. And like, I, I'm curious how this has changed your career and if you feel like it's, you know, what kind of opportunities are coming your way uh, now because of succession?
4: Yeah, it's I, I had a similar this kind of thing happen in the, in Australia where a new predestination happened and then a few more things. And you kind of get to a point where you you look around and go, OK, well, what's next? And it's sort of a slow catch up thing where you kind of have to I had to really learn to be patient and to to do the you know hold don't don't make any certain moves uh make sure you're choosing to do something because you want to do it because the content interests you because the the you know the creatives are people you want to work with not just because it's something to do and that's the next thing um and I feel like I'm at that spot at the moment with with the states succession um you know has I would, yeah, I definitely agree with you in that it's been a bit of a breakout role and, and certainly has uh, made me a better actor, has made me a better um, creative in that way. It's really been a step up in a challenging way I I had never really done comedy um much before and there's a lot of comedy in this but it's it it sort of fits in my wheelhouse of dr- drama as well which is which is nice and comforting but the uh the the opportunities that's opening up in the states I I'm really excited about yeah
1: well yeah I mean the, the writing uh, you know uh, affords you the variation of, of delivering these kind of almost like veep-esque one-liners and then Thirty seconds later, there's a tear rolling down your cheek because you know Shiv is realizing some you know kind of emotional catastrophe has just happened, but she can't show it. So it, it yeah, it feels like yeah. it offers a wealth of, of um, you know variation to play, which is uh, pretty cool. Absolutely,
4: and we have yeah. some of the writers who who worked on who worked on Veep or who you know one of the writers worked on John Oliver, and they they have such um, comedy chops. There's the thick of it, and there's a true comedy grounding, which I think must be enjoyable for the writers as well to like be able to flex their muscles in that way, but then also give themselves the challenge of, of creating, um, really rich dramatic arcs for the characters. And I think they do an amazing job.
1: Yeah, I agree. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, earlier, uh, that you had gone back to Australia to do a play and the theater nerd in me is curious what that play was.
4: Oh, I went to do St. Joan with the Sydney theater company.
1: The shop. Yeah. Wow. Yeah.
4: Yeah. That's quite yeah. a piece. It was. And we, <laughs> it was three, I mean, the shore is three and a half hours, I think, long, totally. Um, And then we cut it down to an hour and a half, um, which was quite the uh, mission and also added in some things like it was it, it, where usually I would hear that and go Oh, that sounds like it was a real dog's breakfast <laughs> I think it actually ended up, ended up working and, and what we were trying to do was serve the character of Joan trying to re-centralize her in her own story because if you read it as it stands now at the original text, she's not in it that much. There's a lot of men bloviating around her and she just has to stand and take it. Um, yeah. she's got some great monologues, but we, yeah, we wanted to see more of how she felt as that teenager through, through that, um, journey of her life. And she's an extraordinary person. She's, she's, she was a real person. It's amazing what she did. And,
1: and that play is, so I saw a production in New York, um, uh, off, off Broadway. That was, I think three actors doing the whole, thing what? just sort of all wow. yeah it was it was actually really <sighs> incredible um but but it it, it 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 makes you realize what a what a dexterous uh kind of linguist a uh, shah was mm. you know because mm. it's also funny like succession is funny it, it has a dark right. sort of propulsive yeah. humor to it so i i feel like there's a there's something vaguely thematically connective between doing saint joan and and, and, and succession in some way
4: yeah, absolutely. That, definitely. I, I felt that when we were yeah. doing it, in that um, you got these people of power and these <laughs> men in power making decisions about others uh, and feeling that they have the right to and doing it in such a kind of casual way and for, for principles, in a way, not thinking about the life that that person has and not thinking about the human side, necessarily. It's, um, yeah. it's this very principled, uh, very cerebral rather than emotional Uh, arguments that they make.
1: Well, I hate to put it in these terms, but you have this, you know, somewhat older stateswoman in Cape Blanchett, who is, you know, became a a huge international movie star and then went back and ran the Sydney Theatre Company for, I think, what, the better part of a decade. Mm. Um, And and so I've interviewed her before. And, you know, theatre has always been such a grounding force in her um, creative career, Um, I'm curious, like, does that, does it, does it seem to function for you in the same way that like, that's a, that's a place you'll always want to return to, um, when, when you have the opportunity?
4: Oh, absolutely. I, it's, I feel like theater is like the gym in a way you, you kind of, it's a workout. You've got to be, um, present and available and thinking three or four steps ahead and also be in the moment (laughs) experiencing what you're, what you're being given by your, um, by your co-star on stage and and then when the audience is there it's another character and I I, yeah love the theatre it was was what I grew up with and grew up doing and I went to the theatre drama school and and whenever I have the opportunity to get back I, I try and take it absolutely.
1: Well, when New York is ready, you should come do something here, because I would would love to see it. I don't know if I have the uh, bandwidth to fly to Australia. Maybe I do. I don't know. I can figure it out. (laughs) It's pretty Um, fun. (laughs) Yeah, and I'm not a good flyer, so, you know. But something that we're asking a lot of people that we interviewed during this... era of our lives is you know aside from work and doing interviews like this like uh you're home you're watching something what's like what kind of stuff have you gravitated toward just as a you know kind of on the couch consumer of of things
4: do you know strangely i've been re-watching things i've got so many things to watch that i want to begin but i've been re-watching things like like fleabag and pen 15 and euphoria um hmm, yeah but i just finished watching pen 15 again last night and uh, it's just such a great show. And I, what I think I'm enjoying about rewatching something is, is having the story told again, but with more of an intimate knowledge of what happens, and so that I get to enjoy the performances in a in a. Um, in a communi- community way, I suppose, where you, you really see that, oh, that's how they're doing it, or that's what they're, gosh, they're smart, they've said that there to feed into the line later and two episodes ago, or those kinds of things where you see something as a whole more rather than just experiencing it in in, in the moment for the first time. But I've really enjoyed doing that. And I'm not sure what it is about being <laughs> locked down in a pandemic that's making me go back and revisit things nostalgically like that. but. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I've been really
1: enjoying it. Oh, no, I get it. I mean, I interviewed James Marston a couple weeks ago, and he told me he's been watching old sports games from, like, years ago. So, like, just because it's, like, comforting and he knows the outcome. And, you know, so we're all finding weird
4: Knows the outcome. Uh, Maybe that's avenues. what it was. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, it yeah. was such a joy for me to rewatch um, some of these succession episodes uh, to talk mm. to you, because it's just such a rich show. And I think you're right. Like, on second viewing, it was like, oh, I can, I can not necessarily I don't have to really be, you know, mapping out the Rhea drama and everything. I can actually just focus mm-hmm. on little moments. I, I think Tom saying, Next Cove, please, Julius, is just like this <laughs> terrific, yes. insane yes. line. Yeah, yeah. that yes. leads to actually a really, really urchin. great scene with the two of you on the beach yeah. um, that feels Absolutely. like a culmination of things. So, yeah, um, that was well, the
4: very last scene we shot in the season of season Oh, was that two. right? That next curve Julius, yeah, out on the boat. And then afterwards once we finished, um, we you know, little boat and we had a little tiny sort of um, satellite crew with us and we finished and we're like, Wow, that's a wrap on Ship and Tom and then just dove into the ocean. It was yeah, amazing. Just like, yeah. We just dove in, yeah. yeah. I mean, it was great. <laughs>
1: That, there's yeah. something Mamma Mia about that, or something. I don't know. That's, that's
4: totally pretty, yeah,
1: pretty totally. romantic. That's great. Yeah. Um, well, thank you again for uh, providing such uh, interesting, complex entertainment and and, and for talking uh, to me today. Uh, I'm sure it's, uh, you know, I'm sure you're very busy, even though we're all stuck at home. But um, we really appreciate your time. <laughs> no, and your no insight.
4: problem. Yeah, and, uh, be great yeah. Hope
1: we'll to chat. talk to you about season three sometime.
4: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Yeah. All
1: right. Thank you so much, Sarah.
4: Thank
0: you. That does it for this week's podcast. We will be back next week. Uh, In the meantime, you can find us all at VanityFair.com. You can read Sonia's review of Lovecraft Country. You can read Richard's review of Boy State. You can read Anthony's piece about black horror filmmakers. Um, And lots of other stuff. You can find us on Twitter at Men And on our own, um, Sonia is at Sonia Soraya. Anthony is at Bresnikan. I'm at Katie Rich. And Richard? Rylos? This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs, and this week's award for the best description of our Twitter feeds in 2020 goes to Sonia Saraya. It's almost a monster of the week.